It's great to welcome all of you to this uh, second service this uh, morning. The first service was unusually large. Extra hour of sleep helped, and you all look especially rested. I love this uh, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and it was great to have one of our elders, Edward Densham, uh, lead us in prayer for our brothers and sisters around the world who are, um, who are suffering uh, today, Remi- and to be reminded that that is happening more now than ever um, before. And it was great to have uh, Edward do that. He uh, heads up the projects department there, and uh, they are serving in the name of Christ uh, around the world, taking the gospel with them, and for that I'm deeply thankful. You know, I'm not going to wade into the current political climate in which we find ourselves, uh, other than to say a few things. Record, a record number of voters have already turned out in early voting, some 25 million plus. Most will go to the polls this Tuesday to cast their votes. In fact, I encourage you to do so. I might see you there. Here's my question, Why? I mean, besides the civic duty and all that, why are so many exercising their right to vote this particular election? Well, I suppose to make America great again, whatever great is. You see, therein lies the challenge. What is a great America? Is it the latest unemployment numbers released just last Friday, 3.7%, the lowest in decades? Is it 250,000 new jobs created in October uh, beyond expectation? Is it a continued booming economy? Is it because your IRAs are doing particularly well? Is it record stock market numbers? Is it proper trade with Mexico, Canada, and China? In other words, is it purely economic? Or are there some non-economic indicators, even moral ones? Is it proper immigration and border control, whatever that is, or proper or appropriate gun control, whatever that is? Does it have to do with racism or women's rights or Supreme Court justices or definitions of gender and sexual expression? I'll let you decide. In fact, you probably will when you vote this Tuesday. But as you glue yourselves to cable news networks to watch returns in what is proving to be a most interesting midterm election, may I encourage you as your pastor not to get too focused on the kingdoms of this world or the stuff of this life. May I remind you that we are simply passing through. We are actually citizens of another country, you see. Our focus is in a city yet to come. Yet, yes, I am an American, proudly and thankfully, Uh, So, but our hope is not in a great America. It is in a great God. And in the book of Hebrews, we have seen that this Christian life is a call to live in assurance of what's hoped for, not not what is already possessed. A, a, A call to live for things not seen, not those things that are merely seen around us. A call to live in the already and not yet, not purely in the already. A call to live in hope of the future, not satisfaction of the present. A call to live for what we will receive, not necessarily for what we have received. A call, listen to this, American evangelical, a call to embrace suffering and not to pursue personal peace and prosperity. A call to believe the promises of God and not the empty guarantees of this world's system. A call to follow Christ and and not give in to the opposition of those who don't. 
A call to live by faith and not by sight. How do we do that? Further, why would we do that? You see, to live by faith is to trust in a God that we cannot see. A Christ, frankly, that we've never seen. A Holy Spirit by very definition of his name who is an immaterial spirit. To trust in the promise of what's to come and what, not what is already seen. And to endure ridicule, even persecution along the way. How do we, how do, we do that? By studying Further, living in the rock-solid substance and evidence of the God of the Bible who has proven himself over and over trustworthy. We are, after all, people of the book. And, and so we study and learn truth to, to include studying the faithful lives of those who have gone before and find encouragement in our pursuit of faithful lives now. This begs a question. Who do you want to be? Who do you dream about being? Some anonymous uh, lottery winner in South Carolina? Let's up the ante. A Bill Gates, a Jeff Bezos, a Mark Zuckerberg. Is that it? Or would you rather be a Abraham, a Moses, a David, a Peter, a James, a John? You see, the author is, has been encouraging faithfulness in the face of as Edward reminded us, rising adversity. Now he points to others who have done so, who had lived by enduring faith. Look at them for encouragement. And, and having seen them, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who also, by the way, faced hostility, opposition, for the joy set before him, notice a future hope and joy, endured. We are people of faith. And, and we hold on with everything that we have, knowing that all along, He has and will hold on to us. Difficult, challenging, painful. Yes. Worth it? Altogether. My brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that the very best is yet to come. We have begun the very famous Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, and we are going to find it one very long, glorious pep rally for believers. Yes, I know it's tough, he says, but you can do it. Others have. And beginning with a definition of faith, he takes us through an Old Testament survey, beginning with creation itself through to, well, present day examples of those who have endured by faith. And we are surrounded with a world of believers who are enduring and suffering by faith. He uses the word faith 24 times in this chapter. 18 of those are, are, are actually the words by faith. By faith, these great people serve as encouragements to us. So let's read the text. He, Hebrews 11 verses 3 and following say this. By faith... We understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through, through which he obtained the testimony uh, that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and th through faith, 
Though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him. For for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen. We've seen that before. In reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to to faith. We will spend several weeks studying the lives of, of people who, by faith, remained faithful to God's promises, promises that are ultimately fulfilled in Christ. My hope is to encourage us to look for what lies ahead, not necessarily what we have faced or what we may be facing right now, but to faithfully endure and to faithfully press ahead. They outlined the text that I just read. By faith, we, that speaks of the belief of faith. By faith, Abel, the worship of faith. By the way, Michael told his daughter, Audrey, uh, that we were going to be studying Abel this morning. And she said, is he starting over? (laughs) Not exactly. (laughs) By faith, Enoch, the the walk of faith. By faith, Noah, the, the work of faith. But, but, but so you know, we're only going to get through those first two points today. But I read all of that because this forms a section. Notice the end of verse 1, that definition of faith, ends with the conviction of things not seen. Then verse 7 says, by faith Noah being warned about, by God about things not seen. This all goes together and actually sets the context for the rest of the chapter. People who live by faith live in confident trust of things not yet seen. Now remember, as we look at these stories, we want to see what it was about the the, the faith of these people that landed them into this great chapter, the Hall of Faith. And, And notice again, our author takes us through time, starting with the beginning of time to the present day to encourage us. Interesting to note that he begins each historical look with those words, by faith, followed by name, by faith, Abel, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Noah, by faith, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, etc. But the very first one, interestingly, is by faith, we. (laughs) We. He he brings his readers into, do you see, into the company of faith. Welcome. You belong in Hebrews 11, the great company of faith. We are those who believe. Believe what? Verse 3. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible or seen. Don't miss here, this verse again ties back to the definition of faith in verse one, assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. Now now here, faith in things not seen relates to the creation of the world. Now, most assuredly, this could be referring to how God created everything out of nothing, as Genesis 1 makes clear. In other words, God didn't take existing matter and form it into what we see. It's possible he's referring to that, in fact, likely. And this, by the way, I just throw this in, no extra charge, this is the challenge with the Big Bang Theory. The Big Bang Theory suggests that there was this matter, dense matter, that exploded and created the universe. My question is, where'd the matter come from? There might have been a Big Bang when God created everything, but he did it out of nothing, you see. 
So it could be referring how, to how he created everything out of nothing, but it could also be referring to the very word of God that created. We weren't there. No one was. No one serves as an eyewitness to what he just said. But by faith, we believe God's word. That's also what is unseen. By faith, we believe by his unseen, in fact, unheard word that he created the universe. No one was there to hear it. But God said it, and it was. Likely a reference to the number of times in Genesis 1 we read, God said, let there be, and there was. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be an expanse, and there was an expanse. Let there be land, and there was. Let there be plants, and there was. Let there be birds and fish, and there was. Let there be animals, and there was. But then, very especially, he did something different. He formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into him the breath of, of life, creating us and us alone in his own image. But let's go back to the very, let's rewind it to the, to the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning points to the beginning of everything, when there was only God. Notice the Bible does not try to prove God, he just is. In the beginning, before there was anything, there was God. And he was the God who created there is perhaps no verse that is more of a problem for modern readers than this first verse of the Bible. It seemingly pits science against faith. I don't believe that that is necessarily so. I believe science, when properly understood and applied, the Bible, when properly understood and applied, are, in fact, reconcilable. But to be clear, I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a geologist, a biologist, an archaeologist, a physicist. I am a theologian. Okay, at least a pastor. <laughs> and I believe the Bible such that when it says, by faith we understand the world, same word he used in chapter 1 verse 2 to speak of the universe, the world or the universe was prepared or created by the word of God, I believe it. It is true, no one was there. It takes faith to believe God created everything that is. By the way, it also takes faith to believe everything was created by chance, w w without a God, because there was no one there at the Big Bang either. And if they were there, then they are no more. I believe God created out of nothing, yes. From his mere spoken word that no one heard, yes. The universe and all that it contains did not just happen. There was a cause, and that cause was God. There is an argument for the existence of God called the cosmological argument. I'm not going to go through it, but it basically says this, that there cannot be an infinite regress, an infinite uh, regress of causes. You, you eventually have to come to the uncaused, uh, uncaused cause, and I am suggesting, and I believe that the uncaused cause is God. Psalm 33, verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts, you want to believe in a big bang, go ahead. I believe there was a big bang when he opened his mouth. One of my favorite preachers from the past was a guy named Dr. S.M. Lockridge. I would pay to have his voice. Speaking of God's creative act, he said in a sermon, God stood on nothing when there was nowhere to stand. He struck the hammer of his uh, power against the anvil of his will. The sparks flew. He gathered them in his hands and flung them into space, and the stars were created. When he saw what he had done, he said it. 
It is good. That's what he said. It is good. The reason he said it is because there was no one else there to say it. Don't miss that. No one else there. And so it takes faith to believe that God created the heavens and the earth. But to be clear, that is not to say that there is no evidence of his creative hand behind creation. Quite the contrary, regardless of what you hear. Romans 1 says it this way, for since the creation of the world, his invisible, don't miss that word, invisible, things not seen attributes, you can't see his, you, you can't see his love or his mercy or his grace or his wrath, you see the results of that, his eternal power, divine nature, you see the results of that, look around, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, that is people, are without excuse. People know in their heart of hearts that there is a God. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him or give uh, him as God will give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. This was written like 2,000 years ago. Professing to be wise, suggesting that everything came into being without the creative act of God, they became fools. Exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Isn't it interesting? And the only thing I'll say about evolution, isn't it interesting that we've reversed the order when it comes to God and made him ultimately a crawling creature? God created We've attempted to deny it, even though his creative acts are clearly seen. Psalm 19 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanses, declaring the work of his hands. I've said it before, all you, need to, all you need to do to believe that there is a God is go outside at night on the parkway where it's nice and dark and look up. You have to close your eyes to the evidence of his handiwork, which people have done for a very long time. Do not for a minute think that denial, came, that denial came with Darwin in the 19th century. Oh, no. People have always wanted to deny the existence of the true God or to remake him into a more palatable God in their own image because they don't want to be held accountable, you see, to the true and the living God. Because as this author reminded us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And so like ostriches, we bury our heads in the sand thinking he will go away. But he will not be dismissed. And by faith, we understand that our God, that is the God of the Bible, is the creator of all things. It is not enough to believe that a God, take your pick, as to which God created everything. You, you must believe in the God of the Bible. We will come back to this idea when we look at Enoch next week. It brings us, so, so the very first one is we believe that God is the creator, which brings us to the very first person on the list in verse four. By faith, Abel, stop right there. Who is this Abel? I mean, he's only mentioned in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter four. Jesus refers to him a, a couple of times in the gospel as Abel the righteous, 
Our author mentions him here in this one verse, then again in chapter 12, which we'll look at later. His story is rather brief, but he's, he starts the list. Let's look at chapter 4, Genesis. Now, the man, that is Adam, had relations, physical relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to, a Cain, to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Okay, there he is. So Abel is a son of Adam and Eve. And Abel was a keeper of the flocks. Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time, interesting phrase, come back to that, that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain repented. No, not exactly. He became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, and the implication is there, he had not done well. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's, it's there. Sin has caused you not to do well. It's desirous for you, but you've got to master it. You've got to master it, Cain. Cain told Abel, his brother, apparently about the conversation and came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. The first martyr of a worshiper of the true and living God. So here we read Cain and Abel were brothers. Cain the older, Abel the younger. Abel was a shepherd. Cain was a farmer, a tiller of the ground. By the way, there is nothing wrong with either one of those professions. In the course of time, literally translated, at the end of days, most suggest that at, this refers to a specific time of offering. At the end of days, leading to a time of offering, Cain brought an offering to the Lord. Seems okay. It, it, it was the fruit of the ground, that is the fruit of his labors. And Abel also brought an offering, the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. Well, what that means with that description is that Abel brought the very best of what he had to offer. That's very clear. What is interesting is the rest of verse 4. God had regard for, that is, he accepted Abel's offering, but he had no regard for Cain's offering, that is, he did not accept Cain's offering of produce. Why? What's, I mean, what's going on here? Lots of discussion about this story through the centuries. I mean, first question, how do we know that God accepted Abel's offering but not Cain's? Many have suggested that perhaps fire fell from heaven and consumed Abel's offering. This happened a number of times, I think five times in the Old Testament, signifying God's acceptance of the offering. In the end, it's, it, that's just a guess, but somehow these men, they're not boys, by the way, these men knew. Second, more importantly, why? Why did God accept Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? Again, lots of discussion uh, about that with the following two ideas perhaps making the most sense. Some suggest that Cain's offering was, as I suggested earlier, a work of his hands. Abel was what God himself provided. And, and so Cain's was an offering of work, Abel not. Uh, that's perhaps true, but... Here's a little wrench in that theory. Later, under the Mosaic law, offerings of produce, remember grain offerings were not only accepted but commanded. Hmm. Another often promoted idea is this. 
This was the time, as I suggested earlier, for a sacrificial offering for the forgiveness of sins. Remember, there are no chapter divisions here. In the previous chapter, just a few verses before, when Adam and Eve sinned, they covered themselves with what? Fig leaves. God said that will never do. And he covered them with animal skins, the first actual recorded death in the Bible. Where did the animal skins come from? Most agree they were from sacrificial offerings, which illustrated and demonstrated the necessity of death for the forgiveness of sins. We've seen, for example, in the book of Hebrews, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so all of those Old Testament sacrifices before the law, up to and through the law in the Levitical system, they were all For the forgiveness of sin, they were blood sacrifices. So perhaps it is suggested Cain broke from God's prescribed instruction of providing at the uh, the prescribed time a sacrifice of blood. That's possible. I believe it's even likely. But to be clear, the text in Genesis does not say. It's a likely deduction, but again, the text does not say. This is largely what Jewish scholars until Christ and Christian scholars since Christ have held. It's what I believe. But we see something further from an inference in verse 5. So Cain became angry and his countenance fell. At the very least, Cain's response of anger rather than repentance, don't miss this, rather than repentance and humility, betrays his evil heart. I mean, really, you're the third person on the planet and you're already angry at God? 1 John 3 says it this way, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Don't miss this. Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Notice the text does not say his deed of slaying his brother was evil, although it was, but that he slew his brother because his deeds were evil. Namely the sacrifice and his brother's righteous. In in what way? Again, I believe it was a matter of his evil, unbelieving heart. He he brought an offering, supposed to, at at the end of days. No heart. Which brings us to the verse in Hebrews 11, 4. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. How was it better than Cain's? Because it was prescribed, perhaps. Because it was a blood sacrifice, perhaps. In fact, likely. But don't miss those first two all-important words in this chapter. By faith. Abel offered his sacrifice by faith. And Hebrews suggests that's why his sacrifice was better, indeed accepted. Any offering must be given, indeed received, by faith. His was the worship prompted by, produced by, faith. 
which all of a sudden maybe says something to us about going through the motions. Doing what we do because we have to or because we're supposed to. We remember the very important verse from Habakkuk quoted at the end of chapter 10 of Hebrews, a few verses before, my righteous one shall live by faith. And by faith, Abel received this testimony that he was righteous. How? By, by the right sacrifice? Not necessarily. Don't miss this. We, we see clearly through both Testaments that people are declared righteous or counted righteous by faith. Throughout the Old Testament, you see the people of God offered sacrifices with evil hearts, and they were not accepted. In fact, they were condemned. Remember Isaiah 1? What, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings, rams, uh, and a fat of uh, a fed ca- cattle. I, no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs or goats. I thought that's what you wanted. When you come to appear before me, who requires this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense, abomination, new moon, Sabbath, calling assembly. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, even in church, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. That sounds like Cain. Here, the right sacrifice offered by faith, faith that God would accept his offering, and as such, Abel received the testimony that he was righteous. Remember, Jesus called him Abel the righteous. He did not become righteous by his sacrifice. He was counted righteous by his faith. God testified it so by his gifts. In other words, God accepted Abel's gift offerings. Perhaps, yes, it was the right offering, but more because it was by faith, the right worship of faith. Do you see? And so through faith, not by deeds, deeds demonstrating faith, though he is dead, he still speaks to the way of faith. That's the point. That's why he's first on the list. And it cost him. I do believe it was a faith in the divinely prescribed sacrifice of blood, but it was faith that was necessary. Offering sacrifices, doing the right things with a cold, dead heart is meaningless. Because we will see in verse 6 that without faith, which evil Cain apparently lacked, it is impossible to please God. And so, Abel's life of faith still speaks today. Fourth man on the planet, however many years ago, won't get into that. And here we are, 21st century, being encouraged by his testimony of faith. Though dead, you see, he still speaks. So, what does this communicate to us this morning? That true faith, a true worship is by faith. It is not, listen carefully to me. It is not 
enough to do the right things. Come to church. Check. Be a good person. Check. Try to keep the Ten Commandments. Check. Most of the time. Check. To offer right sacrifices of time and money and resources and stuff. Doing the right thing without a right heart. A heart of faith means nothing. We worship the true and the living God by faith. Believing, trusting, hoping, persevering, enduring because he is altogether worth it and our greatest treasure. We are reminded in this first story, the first person as an example of faith. Yes, faith in the sacrifice prescribed by God, the death of his son, is alone acceptable. And God's progressive revelation, all those past sacrifices pointed to the future sacrifice of Christ. And we post-cross, post-death, burial, and resurrection look back to the cross. But we do not just look at a past historical event. We look at an event by faith that has changed our lives and our eternity.